there is a judicious use of reason in the tradition. There is a a kind of a purified, healed place for philosophy and theology. Whereas again, depending on where you are in the modern looking at modern theology, you might find someone who says, you know, if you get this the right kind of philosophy, then that's gonna unlock every door, so Tillich or Bultmann or something like that. But then you can have other people say philosophy spoils and utterly spoils theology. And you can find that on the progressive side, but also the very conservative side. And I think that's a very damaging position to hold for theology. And so I think tradition knew that submission to scripture is primary, faith is primary, but that with those things in place, there is a place for a judicious use of philosophy. It's part of Augustine's faith-seeking understanding. Does doctrine really matter? The Apostle Paul once wrote to a young pastor named Titus, instructing him to hold firm to the trustworthy word he was taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. Welcome to Credo Podcast, where doctrine matters and theological ideas have consequences. Here's your host, Dr. Matthew Barrett, executive editor of Credo Magazine and associate professor of Christian theology at Midwestern Seminary. Welcome to the Credo Podcast, where doctrine matters and theological ideas have consequences. I'm Matthew Barrett, your host. Uh, this is the second episode in a new series called the Credo Alliance, where uh, we are bringing together some of today's best theologians, some of whom are Credo fellows as well. We're bringing them together around classical theism or classical theology. And our goal is uh, quite simple, but important. We want to encourage you, maybe you, some of you listeners, the next generation, to consider how you might retrieve classical Christianity for the sake of Reformation today. And like last time, I have here with me Fred Sanders of Torrey and Biola University, J.V. Fesco, uh, at RTS, and also Scott Swain at RTS as well. I'm so glad to have all three of you back. You know, in our last conversation, our listeners got to hear from each of you on a more personal note, you know, what influenced you, what was really a turning point in your life. In this conversation, I mean, we hinted at this a little bit, even in the last one, but in this conversation, Maybe we should talk about method before we turn our attention to the classical Nicene doctrine of the Trinity. Each one of you is a systematic theologian. And yes, that was intentional. <laughs> Having all of you here as systematic theologians, we, we have to ask this question right from the beginning. What is it? Because I think sometimes when people think of classical theism, they think of the doctrines themselves uh, and maybe they're wrestling with those, but it's more than that. What is it about classical theology and its method that's so different from, say, maybe modern theology? Some of you shared about different modern theologians you had to to read and and wrestle with. How does modern theology? I mean, given its its prevalent influence, why is it that classical theology's method uh, it stands in in such a contrast? I'll blame you for this, Matthew. <laughs> and that you sent me an email a month or two ago that made me start thinking more about this question. But I would say there are certainly methods and things that we employ methodically. 
But what I like about, you know, classical theism in particular is the idea that maybe to borrow the title from Matthew Levering's book, Participatory Exegesis, it's the idea that at the end of the day, it's not so much a method as much as we are, you know, entering into uh, communion with the triune God as we seek to understand who God is through his revelation. And that means that there are important spiritual dimensions to the whole classical theist project, you know, so that in contrast, say, to the grammatical historical method, which will often produce less than, I think, biblical results, because it's all about the history, the grammar, the lexicography, and, and, and what have you of a passage. And don't get me wrong, we, we have to unpack those things of the text. But I think that that type of method only gets you so far. And so there are methods that we, you know, that the classical theology does employ. But I think it's in that sense, it's to, to Ellen Shari's point in the pastoral wisdom of theology that the classical theism is ultimately in the pursuit of wisdom, not knowledge. That's what I love, I think, about classical theology's method, if we want to, you know, put it that way. I was thinking about this question. and. If- it seems to me that before you even get to method, and this may be shaping method, but there's a sense in which if you look at even someone like Martin Luther, Thomas Aquinas, certainly Augustine and folks before that, there's an assumption that the Bible, the world, and the theologian himself or herself occupy the same cosmos created by the same God. and so monotheism essentially is the starting point and that kind of fundamental faith in in the oneness of god and therefore the oneness of all the various fields of theology and of the theologian himself or herself i think is the assumption and then what characterized the entire tradition things like submission to scripture as supreme authority. Modern theology is often predicated on suspicion towards scripture. A second feature, what we might call docility towards tradition or teachability towards tradition. Again, think of Kant. What is the enlightened person? Someone who dares to use their own reason and would actually consider kind of docility towards tradition as self-enslavement whereas tradition and 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 i think this is the the impetus behind a lot of retrieval projects is that no we want to be grown-ups we want to be wise and mature in our understanding but we know that we can't do that unless we first listen to someone who who knows better than, than we know and then i think um the last feature and, and this is something i have just come to more and more appreciate is there is a judicious use of reason in the tradition there's a a kind of a purified healed place for philosophy and theology whereas again depending on where you are in the modern looking at modern theology you might find someone who says you know if you get this the right kind of philosophy then that's going to unlock you know, every door, so Tillich or Boltman or something like that. But then you have other people saying philosophy spoils and utterly spoils theology. And you can find that on the progressive side, but also the very conservative side. 
And I think that's a very damaging position to hold for theology. And so I think tradition knew that submission to scripture is primary, faith is primary, but that with those things in place, there is a place for a judicious use of philosophy. It's part of Augustine's faith-seeking understanding, right? Right. I'd love to hear from you, but before we do, Scott, can I just ask a follow-up here? Because you mentioned this in the very end of our last conversation. Like you said, and John, you've even experienced this, right? I mean, there can be a certain skepticism or suspicion or even hostility towards the use of philosophy in theology. But when we go back in time and we look at, say, the church fathers, you mentioned Augustine, Scott. I mean, I, I can't help but think of, uh, what is it, Book 7 of Confessions. Here's Augustine really, in some senses, feeling the dissatisfaction of Manichaeanism, especially mm-hmm. its more materialistic outlook on divinity. And then he talks about how he, he's pushed to read uh, these Platonist authors. And, you know, Augustine's going to go on to give a pretty severe critique of where they fall short. But he, he, he lifts them up for, for a minute because he says they basically opened his mind to transcendence. Yeah. Um, and, you know, many historians have pointed this out, especially with Augustine, that here you have this revolutionary perennial philosophy first goodness i mean it starts in the first uh well bc then ad and then it really comes into late antiquity that is so revolutionary that everyone has to at least wrestle with it or engage it so from you know augustine to boethius to aquinas for augustine even though it's really going to be christ and his descent and and the grace that comes with it that, that brings him home he goes back to those early days in his own story to say, well, this was so revolutionary because it gave me a correct pursuit of wisdom, at least to be pointing in the right direction, you know, to see the promised land from afar, as he puts it. Yeah. Scott, I, I, that's a long way to asking a very pertinent question for our listeners. Does metaphysics matter then? Whether we're reading the Bible, whether we're reading a church father, whether we're actually trying to do systematic theology, how much does it matter? I think it depends on who we're talking about, but I think if we're talking about doing theology in a serious way, then it, it does matter. And just to stick with the example of Augustine from the Confessions, it's interesting when he, when he distinguishes what the Platonists know versus what they don't know. In both instances, he appeals to a kind of scriptural warrant. So he says, the reason the the Platonists got God right is they knew that this visible world could not explain itself. Mm. And it depended on an invisible foundation. And and by the end, again, all kinds of debates about how to take Plato on certain these things. But by the time you get to Augustine's day and and Neoplatonism, you, you've increasingly moved into kind of a monotheistic sphere. You've increasingly moved into a, a certain way of reading Plato where, for example, the creator God and the forms are more closely identified, if not identified directly. And so he thinks, boy, they've got something right. And he uses Romans 120, right? As he keeps quoting that verse 
the invisible God has made himself known through the visible things, right? Plainly manifest himself to them. And he thinks they've also got it right. You mentioned this. They also know that that invisible creator God is the distant homeland that all humans long for. So he says the right to know that the, the end of human existence is for us to have a fellowship in God's own beatitude. We can achieve beatitude by sharing in God's beatitude. That's how I'll say it in the city of God. Well, those are two metaphysical points, okay? There, there are points about, you know, where does the world come from? And there are points about what is the supreme good of human beings? And Augustine thinks that some people got it right, some people got it wrong. He thinks the Bible confirms who got it right mm. and confirms who got it wrong. You can measure it against it. And then when he says, well, where did they miss the boat? They knew, they knew there was a heavenly beatitude to achieve, but they didn't know that God had let the ladder down from heaven <laughs> to us in the incarnation. Yeah. And that's where he goes to John 1.14. No. So there's something that philosophy can do, at least partially. And, and again, I think Augustine believes that it's Christian theology that even clarifies what what the Platonists were hoping to get. But then there's something philosophy has no hope in doing, and, and he believes it's the preaching of the gospel and scripture and so forth that, that gets us there. Hi, friends. This is Matthew Barrett. We are taking a break from our conversation on the Credo podcast because I have some exciting news to share with you. I am the director of the Center for Classical Theology. And this November, November 13th, to, to be exact, the evening before ETS, uh, we will have our kickoff inaugural lecture in San Antonio, Texas. To deliver that lecture, we have asked Carl Truman to give an address called Why We Need Classical Theology Now More Than Ever. I hope you will join me for this lecture, and you can register by going to uh, credomag.com. There you will find a page for the Center of Classical Theology, which will tell you all about Carl Truman, when the lecture will take place, and how you can register today. I can't quite get the line right, but in one of our essays just before she started her systematic theology project, Kate Zonderegger is talking about truth with a capital T. And, and she says, people label it Platonism just so they can get some kind of handle on it. But we're really talking about capital T truth here. Yeah. And there's that kind of sense of, yeah, you know, labeling yeah. it can have a value for either championing it or dismissing it. Um, but But there is some kind of approach to, you know, an invisible fundamental reality out there which can go by the name metaphysics yeah Fred since I've I've got you for a second here maybe this is a great segue from uh, you know what we're calling method though I appreciate John's point about how it's almost a, a spirit in which you are conducting theology faith seeking understanding is a spiritual exercise but as we move from you know method to say our doctrine of the Trinity in particular. I mean, for, for all of you, but Fred, for you in particular, this has been so much at the, the center of your project. You spent a lot of years, I know, decades even, uh, contemplating uh, eternal generation. So Fred, maybe you can kick us off here. Why 
why? <laughs> why? <laughs> How else do I say it? Why, why would you spend so much of your life, not just talking about eternal generation, but, but even trying to encourage and even, you know, to preach a little here, <laughs> even to compel people, hey, if we, if we don't retrieve eternal generation, we are going to suffer for it. Why has that been such an important factor of, of your theology, Fred? I think it's worth acknowledging that from one point of view, eternal generation, that is the eternal relation of the father to the son, is only one part of the doctrine of the Trinity. You know, if you're in the habit of drawing a triangle and working out your Trinitarian theology in those coordinates, there's a sense in which you're only working one side of the triangle by focusing on this. And I think when Scott and I had to find a publisher to convince to publish a book on retrieving eternal generation, part of the persuasive challenge was your own. Why did you do one on the whole Trinity? (laughs) And it's not so much you're leaving out the Holy spirit. It's just like, isn't that just one conceptual aspect of the whole complex of the doctrine of the Trinity? And certainly in one sense it is, but from another point of view, it's, it's sort of the whole, it's the whole thing, you know, it's, it's how, how can we come to understand the one God in this eternal dynamic life that is, multi-hypostatic. If you can come to an understanding of what it is for the father to beget the son, then you've done all the heavy lifting. And it's a more relational, in a couple of different senses of that word, it's a more directly biblical way of apprehending the doctrine of the Trinity, more than, you know, the standard classroom move of drawing a triangle and working your way around the seven propositions that can be derived from claiming that each of these persons is God, are not each other, etc. Mm. You know, I've taught that way before. I'll teach that way again. In debates about the Trinity, I will organize my proofs on a triangular diagram <laughs> so that I can look down and find Bible verses for whichever sub-proposition is being disputed by my opponent. Um, so it's a handy thing, but it really doesn't take you that sort of Athanasian creed, triangular diagram of the Trinity approach doesn't take you right to the heart of what God is mainly communicating about himself, which is that the father loves the son in the spirit. And that, that was a little bit of a journey. Well, like when I wrote deep things of God in uh, 2009, I actually spent several days praying and meditating about whether it was strategically appropriate to emphasize eternal generation or whether I should put that on the back burner and say, well, I might be able to reach more people and help a larger audience if I don't make that as central. But I decided, like, not only is it true, true and biblically helpful, I think if people get this point, then the long lines that open up from the doctrine of God into the gospel, right? From the from the eternal sonship of the eternally begotten one down to our adoptive sonship um, through the work of salvation. Uh, mm-hmm. Those long lines open up. And that was the connection I was, I've, I've always been trying to make between mm-hmm. Trinity and gospel. But, you know, this this opens up Another question, and this is for everyone, really. All of you have written on the Trinity in some way or form. Fred, you're talking about eternal generation and how important that is. I mean, given, given the last you know, half a century, probably could add and, and say, well, it's not just eternal generation that at times has been neglected or, or at worst, you know, thrown into suspicion but also divine simplicity. And maybe we could go further. I mean, Adonis Vidu is pointing this out to say, well, it's, it's not even just divine simplicity, but 
uh, further ramifications, which would include something like the inseparable operations of the Trinity. You know, we think of that famous line that the external works of the Trinity are are undivided, they're indivisible. But Lewis Ayers, for example, has made the point that when we look at not just the history of Nicaea, but the, what he calls the pro-Nicene hermeneutic or the pro-Nicene tradition, uh, something like in simplicity and then with it inseparable operations is, is quite indispensable to this Christian Trinitarianism. So why is that? I mean, do, you, do you think Lewis Ayers is right on this? And if so, why? Why is this so significant for really, like you said, Fred, not just eternal generation, but, but filling in the whole of our doctrine of the Trinity? I do think it's important. I remember a few years back reading a book review, and it was a book review on a book about divine simplicity. And towards the conclusion of the review, the reviewer asked, well, one thing the author doesn't address or one thing that needs to be addressed in light of this book is whether the doctrine of divine divine simplicity is consistent with Trinitarianism. Mm -hmm. You know, I read that and I thought, wow, (laughs) how far have we come? Yeah. Because, you know, if you look at, especially 17th century debates with Socinians and Turretin to, to bring up something we talked about last time. Turretin points out when he's talking about divine simplicity, when he's defending divine simplicity, he said, the reason Socinians attack the doctrine of divine simplicity is because what they're really after is the doctrine of the Trinity. Hmm. Okay. So here you got a you know, modern author is Trinity and simplicity consistent. Turretin thinks you can't have one without the other. And, and the reason at the end of the day is because right, the oneness of God, we're not just talking about God as one of something else. It's that transcendent oneness that distinguishes him from all other would-be gods, but also describes the nature of his own life. It's, it's not a composite life. It describes the nature of creation insofar as Creation doesn't have multiple sources. It proceeds from one first principle, one alpha and omega. And and that's why eternal generation was kind of hammered out the way it was, because under the pressure of, of biblical revelation, eternal generation and eternal procession are the only ways you can distinguish the persons of a simple God. And so the, these things, far from being intention to each other, I think Ayers is exactly right. They uh, they emerge from the same culture of theology that's reading the Bible in a certain way, that's treating Matthew twenty eight nineteen and the rule of faith and publishing creeds downstream for that in a certain way, that's worshiping a certain way, and that is telling people that the the gift of salvation and regeneration and cleansing of sins that that baptism represents, right, comes about in a certain way by one God who has three persons. Hmm. And so it, the whole package, it, it, it's not a haphazard deal. It's all intricately related. Yeah, think how easy early Christian theology would have been if you could have just treated these three actors 
as three instances of the category God. Yeah. And they are equal to each other. Yeah. <laughs> that, that would have been, you wouldn't need geniuses like Nissa and Augustine to work that out. That's just straight up <laughs> tritheism limited to a club of three. Yeah. And you would never have had the doctrine of the Trinity. You would, there'd be no need for it. Yeah. Well, there are all kinds of op- options in Judaism and pagan culture where you could do that. Right. Yeah. You've got, you've got ready-made philosophies. You could just go with it. Yeah. I think something else that strikes me is that what the classical you know, position is doing is uh, they're hammering out the doctrine of the Trinity, you know, with the Bible. But as, as you said, Scott, with the judicious use of philosophy to help them clarify things. And if I can throw Molotov cocktail out there and say a lot of what passes for Trinitarianism in the 20th and 21st century isn't. And so the way they dismiss the, the, the classical position is to say, well, that's Greek philosophy. That's out of bounds. And so we're going to bring a biblical picture. But what they don't reveal or know is that, well, they've got philosophers too. It's Hegel in many instances. And so whatever, you know, Hellenophobia they may have, they have Germanophilia. And so beware of Germans bearing gifts is what I say. <laughs> uh, you know, so that that's that I think is an important thing. It, it's almost like the tritheists are criticizing genuine Trinitarianism, which is why there's this antithesis between the two ideas. Mm-hmm. Mark Edwards somewhere says, you know, Speaking of early Trinitarianism, no self-respecting Greek philosopher would have proposed the Trinity as kind of a solution to his philosophical conundrums. <laughs> Steer clear of this problematic doctrine. I think this whole discussion, I mean, it really takes us home, doesn't it? Because we're not talking about something that is tertiary, whether it's simplicity and inseparable operations, whether it's uh, eternal generation and the consubstantiality of the son with the father, another pressing issue today. Uh, uh, this is at the very heart of our Trinitarianism, which, which takes us to a, a closing question that I'm really eager to hear what each of you have to say here. And that is that the issue of creedal fidelity. When we were seeking to be faithful to the scriptures, but at the same time, I think, Scott, you mentioned this, a certain docility towards tradition accompanied by a judicious use of of reason and philosophy. But when we come to the doctrine of the Trinity, especially, I mean, it's one thing to talk about it in the classroom, but if we're doing it right, we're talking about the Christian doctrine of the Trinity which of course, as theologians, uh, that should take us immediately to the church itself. Why is a type of creedal fidelity, let's just take something like Nicaea, for example, why is this so critical in so many ways, whether it's the health uh, of the, the local church itself or just a right approach to theology rather than a, a type of crude biblicism, Maybe, you know, Fred, you've mentioned this, even the gospel and salvation, but, but maybe even the bigger question is the future, right? Why is this so pivotal? I mean, are, is this just a fascinating, you know, book project, or are we actually concerned about the future of Christianity and the church moving forward? How has this been pressed on the minds and hearts of each one of you? 
think that uh, one of the things that I always try to impress upon my students is that Christianity is deeper than your own personal profession of faith, as important as that is. And it's deeper than the, the Christians that are walking around today. You know, to borrow a phrase from G.K. Chesterton, we participate in the democracy of the dead. And that means that ideally, uh, at its best, our faith extends well beyond our own day into the early church and, you know, all the way back to Genesis, of course. But but in terms of these discussions, it goes back to the early church. And we want to ask ourselves when Paul talks about Ephesians 4, in Ephesians 4, that he's given pastors and teachers as gifts uh, to the church, are we just going to count those pastors and gifts that are living and breathing, or are we also going to factor these other gifts throughout the history of the church? And I think the church fathers at Nicaea are, in that sense, a treasure and a tremendous resource uh, for us. Yeah, I think materially, like in terms of the, the content, because there's also a formal question about adhering to a creed um, and kind of how that looks in congregational life at different levels. But just to like cut straight through to the, the actual subject matter is that Nicene judgment about the Son of God and what we mean by Son of God. I think it's in a in an essay I recently wrote for one of your projects, uh, Matthew, is, is closely reading the Nicene Creed and realized like, well, they say we believe in uh, Jesus Christ, the Son. And then the creed goes on to say like eight different ways or maybe nine, depending on how you count what they mean by son. It just hammers it. <laughs> and so that's a for a sola scriptura Protestant Christian. Uh, that's a really helpful like, oh, right. When I see son in the Bible referring to Jesus Christ. There are about 20 temptations for grounding that sonship in some other thing, but I need to be sort of driven to the deepest possible commitment to what it means that this one is the sun. You can wander around a little bit. You can look for other ways to establish it, but it, it really is laid out there. It's the main point the Nicene Creed is written to address, and it really is a guide for reading the Bible right. Yeah. Maybe I'll say something about the formal point then. You know, you think of the Nicene Creed, it's basically a fourth century way of saying what it means to be baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, and to confess that the Son, in whose name we're baptized, is Lord. Jesus is Lord. From a formal perspective, it matters that we, that's, that it's not just my personal confession that Jesus is Lord, but that it's a shared confession, and, and not just shared with those in the past, but shared with those alive today, shared with the communion of saints around the heavenly throne, because Paul in Romans, towards the conclusion of that letter, says basically one of God's great purposes in the gospel for Jew and Gentile is that with one voice, they may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, how are we going to do that? unless we're using the same words. So a creed is, is an instrument, right, for fulfilling what is a fundamentally biblical mandate, a mandate that's at the heart of the gospel of acknowledging the unity of the church that is a unity, that is the kind of unity is because of the oneness of the God in whose name we are baptized. 
Now you can fill up on theology each day by visiting credomag.com. There you will find the latest issues of Credo Magazine with articles on key doctrines of the faith and regular video interviews with Dr. Matthew Barrett, where he answers some of the toughest theological questions of our day. Be sure to subscribe to Credo Podcasts to join the conversation, a conversation where doctrine matters.